I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to season two of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did. This year, you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. Hey guys, we have talked a lot about how we use the MedBridge PCS prep course to develop our study plan and as an awesome supplemental resource for the PCS exam. Not only are there copious amounts of videos, but they also include practice exams, recommended readings, and other resources to add to your toolbox. To celebrate Physical Therapy Month, MedBridge is running a special on their premium subscription for just $225 if you use the code PTM pushing peds. You can also click on the link in the episode notes. These subscriptions are good for one year of content and gives you premium access, including their PCS prep content. Even if you are not studying for the PCS, you can still use this discount code for continuing education credits. Share it with your colleagues and other friends who may be studying for their other specialty exams. Hurry, this special priced PT month promotion ends on October 31st. Okay, guys, this clinical summary from the APTA on muscular dystrophy is huge. It was over 100 pages, so you can see this topic is broad with a ton of information. It all feels important. It always does, but we will try our best to help break it down into some more manageable pieces for you. Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or DMD, is an X-linked inherited neuromuscular disease causing progressive muscular atrophy that leads to the loss of ambulation in childhood. Becker muscular dystrophy, or BMD, is the milder phenotype of this same disease. So I'm just going to jump in really quick and let you know that in the clinical summary, sometimes they use DMD and BMD to delineate. And then sometimes when they're just talking about it as comprehensive discussion, they will say DBMD. So just wanted to let you guys know that nomenclature, and we're going to kind of use those same things as we talk about it now. So getting back to it, the classic signs and symptoms include a wide-based lordotic gait, difficulty standing up from the floor. This is also known as the Gower sign, calf pseudohypertrophy, and progressive weakness. 
The main functional difference between DMD and BMD is that Duchenne muscular dystrophy, the loss of ambulation is between 8 and 16 years old. In Becker, it is usually later than 16 years old. Primary impairments include muscle cell atrophy and fibrosis, including replacement of muscle tissue with adipose tissue. Secondary impairments include muscle weakness that is progressive in nature with the lower extremities before the upper extremities and the proximal before the distal. Joint contracture with the hamstrings and heel cords are the most affected, followed by hip flexors, knee flexors, and the IT band. You will also see posture and gait deficits with compensatory patterns to remain upright against gravity. Scoliosis is common, especially in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Cognitive deficits are also seen, but less so with Becker. Cardiomyopathy and respiratory conditions are also secondary impairments with progressive loss of respiratory muscle function and increased need for mechanical ventilation. Gross motor tasks with DMD and BMD may not initially be delayed or they are slightly delayed and they may improve with therapy. Then you will see a plateau of motor skills as the weakness progresses. You will then see progressive gait deviations and slower velocity, loss of stair climbing and transitional skills, increased reliance on assistive devices for mobility, and finally, a loss of ambulation with a mean of 9 to 10 years without steroids. Boys with DBMD are classified in stages based on functional skill levels. Now, due to the aggressive use of steroids by many patients with DBMD, there is a large variability in the ages at which boys move from one stage to another. So stage one is the pre-symptomatic stage. In this stage, infants and young toddlers generally are not diagnosed unless they have a family history of muscular dystrophy or an incidental laboratory test for creatine kinase or transaminase that has abnormal values. However, infants and toddlers with pre-symptomatic muscular dystrophy often have delays in cognitive language and motor skills compared with their peers. Even at this young age, their gross motor skills may be developing at a slower rate than their peers. Stage two is the early ambulatory stage. During this stage, boys with DBMD often gain motor skills before reaching a plateau in strength-related activities. They are still able to make some improvement in their balance and coordination skills. When walking, boys often have an increased lumbar lordosis and waddling gait pattern. They have difficulty running and may not be able to clear both feet simultaneously. When compared with their peers, they have progressive difficulty standing up from the floor and climbing stairs, and they might or might not have developed the ability to jump or hop. In this stage, boys are still performing self-care skills near age level. They also might be able to participate in recreational activities such as swimming. Stage three is the late ambulatory stage. Boys in this stage start to lose motor skills involved in climbing stairs, standing up from the floor, and running. They have difficulty with anti-gravity extension and show increased postural and gait deviations to remain upright. They also develop early flexion and plantar flexion contractures. 
To maintain ambulation, it is important for boys to perform daily standing and walking activities. However, it is also important for them to have access to a mobility device to help them keep up with their peers and navigate longer distances in the community. This stage continues until the child loses the ability to stand and walk independently. Stage four is the early non-ambulatory stage. Boys with DMD who have not taken corticosteroids lose their ability to walk independently at a mean age of nine or 10 years. Boys treated with corticosteroids generally walk two to five years longer when this treatment is initiated early. In this stage, boys often use a power wheelchair for their primary means of independent mobility. However, they also may be able to sit, scoot, or crawl independently. Most boys with DBMD are still able to perform many activities of daily living while in a wheelchair. They often need some assistance or adaptive equipment for bathing, toileting, and transfers. The last stage is stage five, the late non-ambulatory stage. This stage is characterized by limited upper extremity function and increasing need for caregiver assistance for all activities of daily living. They often use a BiPAP machine at night and as young adults will need to start assisted ventilation during the day. A young man's ability to access his environment often requires the use of a power wheelchair. He will also need access to a computer and assistive technology to engage with his peers. When looking at assessment, it will depend on what stage the child is in that you are assessing. We are always going to look at strength and endurance. For endurance, we may look at something like the six minute walk test or an arm ergometer if they are no longer ambulatory. We will look at range of motion and we'll likely see hamstring tightness and heel cord tightness first. We want to monitor the high risk muscles every three to six months. With posture and gait, in the pre-symptomatic stage, we may see delayed walking. In the early ambulatory stage, you may begin to see that lordosis posture, as well as the waddling gait pattern. These will increase into the late ambulatory stage, and you may see a wide base of support, more of a lateral trunk lean, and possibly toe walking. Once in the non-ambulatory stage, you may see progression of scoliosis. In the late non-ambulatory stage, you may need to look at sleeping and positioning postures more. We are always going to assess pain. When looking at activity limitations, we need to look at functional mobility. How do they move and get around? Observation of transfers and motor skills is made to describe compensatory movements, level of assistance, and assistive devices used. Time tests also are used to monitor changes in function over time. These timed results can be used to help predict when a child is likely to lose the ability to perform a skill. Make sure to review your loss of function predictions for DMD. That's something we're definitely going to post about this week on the Instagram as well as a resource for you. And we talk a lot about it in our episode that covered muscular dystrophy in season one. The clinical summary then goes on to list about 50 standardized assessments. You guys, we cannot list and discuss them all. It would be so boring and so overwhelming. There are a ton of resources available for standardized testing, and this clinical summary is available to you and is helpful in reviewing them. But it is very in-depth and more comprehensive than our time allows. A few assessments have been reported to provide some predictive value. 
So make sure to know those. But moving on, the diagnosis of DBMD is made by a neuromuscular specialist. And unfortunately, there is often a significant delay in time between the initial signs of weakness and the diagnosis. When a physician suspects muscular dystrophy, the child is referred to laboratory testing for creatine kinase testing. CK is released into the bloodstream with muscle cell breakdown, and it is significantly elevated in boys with DBMD. Further testing is done to confirm. The diagnosis of DMD versus BMD can be predicted in about 90% of cases based on the frame shift hypothesis and clinical examination. Young men with DBMD currently live into their 20s, 30s, and even 40s. Life expectancy has increased with the use of corticosteroids and non-invasive ventilation. Death is generally related to pulmonary or cardiac deterioration. Prognosis is determined by several factors. Boys with BMD have an in-frame mutation that encodes for a semi-functional dystrophin protein and therefore generally have a better disease prognosis. Some boys with more severe BMD have a prognosis similar to those peers with DMD, whereas other patients with BMD may not exhibit significant loss of function until they are in their 20s to 40s. Even in mild cases of BMD, however, cardiomyopathy often decreases the lifespan. The clinical summary then breaks down rehabilitative strategies by stage. Maintaining range of motion to help prolong ambulation and improve wheelchair positioning and comfort. Early on, this is stretching of the heel cords and hamstrings, later adding the hip flexors and the IT band. This might include the use of night splints or positions that counteract that 90-90 sitting posture, like laying in prone. In the early and late non-ambulatory phases, we're now adding in upper extremity, wrist, and hand range of motion activities and splinting to preserve function. Some exercise recommendations include encourage submaximal exercise. That one's definitely important. Avoid resistive or high load activities for boys with DMD. That's where that eccentric loading too, that's a really big thing with DMD is that you don't want to do anything that creates that eccentric loading. Yeah, honestly, all of these recommendations are pretty important yeah. <laughs> for you to know, <laughs> especially in this population, for sure. Continuing on with exercise recommendations. Encourage self-paced endurance activities, swimming activities, decrease the effects of gravity and load, and aquatic therapy may also be a good medium to work on activities. Assisted stationary cycling may help to reduce disuse atrophy following the loss of ambulation, and resistance and endurance training may be tolerated in persons with BMD. Definitely keep these in the back of your mind because I do remember during practice exams, we did have some questions on these during some of the MedBridge exams, PCS Advantage. So they are definitely fair game and something that you should be aware of when you're ha when you have a question or a case about a child with DMD. In terms of balance and coordination, it is important to remember that balance skills can still improve while strength decreases. We can also work on pulmonary function. 
Maximal inhalation and breath stacking improves forced vital capacity and activities to increase flexibility of the chest wall should be encouraged. It is important to always be thinking about mobility device needs. Looking to the future is important because it can take some time to actually receive equipment. I know this firsthand in schools, sometimes we don't get the equipment for six months to a year. So it's really important to think about what the child or young adult needs now and also within the next five years. Options to think about include strollers or a passive mobility device, tricycles or recumbent tricycles, power scooters for recreation or longer distances, manual wheelchairs with or without power assist wheels, and then obviously the power wheelchair. And then looking at the greater picture, what does their home environment look like? Do modifications need to be made? Do they have the means to purchase a wheelchair van? Will they need a lift? Again, the clinical summary details equipment considerations at each stage of the disease progression. When I look at this, I really can start to see the formation of question on an exam where you really have to know multiple layers of things that they're not going to give you the answers to. So thinking about muscular dystrophy and thinking about the loss of function predictions. So you could see a question that had said something like that gives you an indication of that they're going to lose function. And then you need to know that that means that within six months, they're not going to be walking again. And then that means that you then have to think about the equipment. So that's the type of thing that the test is going to challenge. They're not just going to say the child's going to lose function in six months. What do they need? They're going to make you have to realize that the child is going to lose function within six to 12 months. And then you have to pick the most reasonable equipment for them. This is why the case studies book also does a really nice job too, because it gives you that case like you're going to get in some of the PCS advantage practice exams where it's a full case and you're answering three to five questions on that specific case. So like Sheila said, you're going to have one case and then you're going to have a question about, okay, what loss of function do you expect to happen next? And then maybe you'll have a question on what kind of exercise. And then you'll have a question on what type of mobility device do you think will be best for them? And then going on with what Sheila said too, going back to some of the tests that we didn't go over the outcome measures that are listed for you in the clinical summary, Sheila did mention that there are some specific tests that have specific numbers that correlate to loss of function, loss of walking in children with DMD. So again, just something to be aware of and something for you to definitely look at throughout your study process. Definitely. All right, moving on, the clinical summary moves to discuss medical management next, which is quite in-depth and probably a larger scope than this test entails, but we will highlight a few things. Steroid medication is usually initiated in the early ambulatory stage when motor skills begin to plateau. The medication of choice is usually either prednisone or deflazacort. Corticosteroids are the primary evidence-based pharmacological treatment. Long-term use of corticosteroids have been shown to prolong ambulation for an additional two to five years, reduce scoliosis and the need for spinal stabilization surgery, 
improve peak cough flow and forced vital capacity, reduce cardiomyopathy, and delay the use of non-invasive ventilation. There are also medical considerations for endocrinology, pulmonology, cardiology, nutrition, and psychosocial. They are all listed in the document, broken down again by stage. With orthopedic management, boys may require fixation for fracture management in the late ambulatory stage. They may also require a spinal stabilization or an Achilles lengthening in the early non-ambulatory stage. Again, there is a lot more depth outlining all of the above medical management techniques, and you can read through them to familiarize yourself. So that wraps up the clinical summary on DBMD. We will see you guys next time. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time. And remember, you totally got it.